Welcome to The Source, investments podcast covering trends and insights in institutional investing, and where we get to sit down with people across the industry to get their take on trends and best practices. In this episode, we're joined by Dennis Hammond, head of institutional investments at Verity Management. Dennis has a long background in the industry. He founded Hammond Associates and over 30 years grew that business, ultimately selling it to Mercer in 2010. The conversation with Dennis focused on how they approach ESG investing with their clients. We also talk about recent research Dennis published on the endowment model and the 60-40 benchmark. We did split this episode into two, so today's episode will be focused on the ESG topic, and we will publish our conversation with him around the endowment model at a later date as part two with Dennis Hammond. So back to ESG. Investment recently launched a new questionnaire to give consultants and investors access to more information about a manager's ESG approach and the resulting impact of that approach. That data is now available in our analytics platform to begin screening and comparing managers on. For questions on how to access it, please email us at solutions at investment.com. And if you have any other questions about topics we covered with Dennis today, please reach out as well. With that, let's jump into our conversation with Dennis. So Dennis, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, before we jump into the couple topics we have today, can you just take a moment to give us a little bit of background on your current role and kind of your background in the industry? Sure. Thanks for letting me be here. Really appreciate it, Rich. It's, um, it's a privilege to be able to work with you beyond this podcast. I was the founder and chief executive officer of Hammond Associates. We were an investment consulting firm located in St. Louis. We worked primarily with endowments and consultants. We had about 130 terrific people and some 350 um, endowments, foundations, hospital trusts, uh, pension plans, and family wealth. We had a little over 55, 56 billion in AUA when I sold it to Mercer in 2011. Um, during the period though that I owned that company, I seldom gave any thought to responsible investing. There was a brief period back in the 80s when there was some concern about South Africa free, mm -hmm. uh, not investing in companies like Coca-Cola at the time that had plants there. And uh, a very small number of clients expressed dissatisfaction with what was called at that time sin stocks. Uh, but I, for one, was against the notion of following that approach and distracting from our performance. Yep. So I now believe I was wrong <laughs> about that. <laughs> so today I serve uh, Verity uh, Management as the head of institutional investing. I'm trying to right my wrongs. I help institutions think through and finally express missional goals and objectives um, in portfolios. So whether that's uh, an endowment, a foundation, a nuclear decommissioning trust, or an individual, a family uh, office, or multifamily. We're looking at ESG issues. We're looking at the United Nations SDG issues, which are more uh, sustainability and, and human race oriented. And finally, faith-based issues. So that's, that's what I'm doing today. So I, I wanna dig a little bit further into the ESG topic. 
can you just talk about how you've seen the demand for strategy change over time? So you mentioned, you know, this started in the eighties and it was something totally different, but now is it something that when clients are coming to you, it's kind of table stakes that ESG is taken into account in these investing approaches, or are you working with your clients to say, Hey, you, you might want to consider this. It's the former for us usually in that clients come into us with a investment policy statement. And that investment policy statement says we will not invest in, uh, let's say, uh, companies that are heavily invested in coal, or we will not invest in companies that are ignoring this sustainability issue or that. Uh, we can help them uh, clarify their thinking mm -hmm. and help them ensure that their materiality thresholds are sensible and are doing what they thought they were doing. Uh, but typically we're not pushing a program one way or the other. So if you come in and you say, I want a fossil fuel free portfolio, then our discussion will be centered around how best to do that whether you want that uh, from simply extraction to the mid middle area distribution, the whole thing, how, how do you see it? Uh, that's our approach to helping you implement it, your mission uh, rather than, than ours. So we are seeing, um, uh, and by the way, the way we want to do that is we, we try to help clients establish separately managed accounts. Uh -huh. Uh, like like a lot of folks do, but ours will principally be what's called direct indexed. So the folks that come to us already have an index fund. It may be Acqui or Acquix US, EFA, MSCI World, it could be the S&P 500 or the 600, but they want that and they want to continue that index, but they want that index to reflect their values, to be in line with their missional objectives. Uh, that's harder to do, especially if you've got uh, a, a more thoughtful set of uh, missions and objectives. So they'll come to us and we will customize that index in an SMA. And then at the end of the day, we're able to optimize the uh, remaining securities back to the benchmark so you have the lowest possible tracking error and still have complete alignment with your objectives. So I, I think I read somewhere that you, you talk about a couple ways to do this. It's either tilting towards owning desirable companies or not owning undesirable companies. What do you see more often than not? The default has been negative screens. Mm -hmm. So for instance, this is where the South Africa free came from. We wanted a, we wanted to totally divest from any company that was doing business in South Africa, like Coca-Cola, because they were doing bad things. And you still see that in fossil free divestment today. You see it in divesting from companies that uh, produce certain products like abortion or landmines or cluster munitions. Um, you, uh, in the, in the faith area, we see it with alcohol, tobacco, uh, gambling, and adult entertainment. Those are typically negative screens. In other words, I want to own this benchmark, but I don't want to own any company that has anything to do with these areas because they violate issues that are important to me, mm -hmm. whether they're social or uh, more financial governance issues or uh, environmental. Uh, now, 
more recently, I think you're seeing people taking that a little bit further and saying, you know, as long as we're at it, why don't we also implement some positive screens? So for instance, we just did a, a set of screens for a foundation that uh, wanted fossil fuel free, complete divestment, but we suggested that they also emphasize the top two or three tiers of ESG performers. Now, what that means is once you've taken out the, the companies you don't want to have exposure to, you're now overweighting the resulting companies that are there by putting more weighting in the companies that have the highest ESG scores. You can emphasize just the E, just the S, just the G, whatever you want. You can emphasize the particular tranches of the UN SDG goals. So for instance, if you want to emphasize eliminating hunger or providing more clean water or providing affordable housing, there are ways to screen to, uh, to um, provide a, um, an additional boost to those kinds of companies in your portfolio. Remember, however, at the end of the day, we're going to optimize this all back to the benchmark. So we're able to do both the negative and positive screens and not give up a close tracking to the benchmark. That's critical. The whole idea is to be able to do good and do well. And so uh, companies uh, that, that are, aren't going to fit in that we can get rid of, but still track our benchmark closely. So you, you talked about some of the ESG scores and ratings and in, a, in a, a piece that I'd like to talk about here in a second, you mentioned that there's some shortfalls with those ratings. Can you expand on uh, the findings of that uh, research you did? That was, a, that was an interesting piece. Um, what, what you have, for instance, in, in that particular one, I looked at four factors that... Um, for business activities that are traditionally prohibited by some faith-based institutions, involvement with alcohol, tobacco, gambling, and adult entertainment. And we used the largest uh, global equity opportunity set I could come up with. So we used an opportunity set that started with 37,000 companies. And what we found is, and we, we whittled that down to companies we could own. What we found is, in this opportunity set, about 20% of the companies, or 763, had revenues from one of these four proscribed activities. Okay, pretty good. So, in other words, a fifth of all the companies in this particular opportunity set, which is similar to um, a global uh, large, mid-small opportunity set, uh, 20% would somehow be involved in those revenue streams. The problem is that, and by the way, those 20% produce almost $800 billion in revenues. Okay, so it's not a small uh, amount of uh, companies or revenues. The problem is the standard approach uses a percent of revenue approach. So if you, if you there are some wonderful providers of data, um, whether it's MSCI or Sustainalytics, ISS, True Value Labs, and others. But um, the, the standard approach is to screen companies out with reference to the percentage of their revenue that's tied back to the tainted behavior. 
The problem with that is if it's a big enough company, it won't screen them out regardless of how much they produce in the, uh, in the behavior. So what we discovered was using these four standard um, approaches or business activities, only 9% of the companies in, involved in those activities got screened out. 67 out of 763. And uh, it, it was, uh, the good news was the standard approach did screen out almost two thirds of the prohibited revenue. It screened out 62%. So the question was, well, gee, what, what could we do to do a better job of screening out these companies? Because at the end of the day, if, if you're a big company, but you're producing something that is bad, but, but it doesn't rise to 10% of your revenues, the question that, that thoughtful investors have to answer is, do I want to keep this? Can I live with it or not? Because they are pumping in this case, some 700, 800 billion dollars of proscribed um, products and services into society. Mm -hmm. Do I am I okay investing in that and becoming a part of that? So our notion was to change the approach from percentage of revenues to a dollars of revenue approach. So in the percentage of revenues, you might say, well, I'm going to screen out everybody involved in this who's revenue from this activity is at least 5% or is at least 10%. If it's less than 10%, I'm not going to screen them out. Uh, we took the approach of saying, we're going to screen out anyone whose involvement is more than a dollar amount. So now a dollar amount is easier to deal with. You could set the dollar amount at a billion dollars. 500 million, 100 million, whatever number you want it. But the point is now you're getting rid of anyone who has revenues of let's say 100 million um, or even 10 million. You're getting rid of anyone who has significant revenues from that activity. And my argument was that's a better approach to excluding companies if you're really serious about these issues, right? Anyway, the long and the short of it was uh, we were able to determine that we could increase the number of uh, companies excluded from 9% to about 76%. And we could increase the dollars of revenue excluded from about um, $480 billion to almost the whole $800 billion. It was interesting, in, in, in one of these four cases, the largest producer of revenue was not excluded by the standard. And in a different uh, activity, none of the producers of the revenue were excluded by the standard. So in, for instance, in adult entertainment, uh, the standard uh, approach excluded zippity-doo-dah, nobody. Why? Because the percentage, even though there was in adult entertainment, there's $8 billion of prescribed revenue in this database and geos global equity opportunity set for every company involved it did not rise to 10 percent of their revenue stream so they are allowed to keep going so it's just you know it's just two different approaches are you trying to the, the answer becomes are you trying to screen out the behavior 
and the introduction into society of whatever they're producing? Or are you just trying to screen out companies that are heavily involved in that behavior? If you're doing, if you're just wanting to screen out companies heavily involved, then you would use the standard approach. That, that's fine. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to screen out the, the behavior itself, the, uh, the alcohol, the gambling, the predatory lending, uh, whatever it might be, then you might want to use the dollars of revenue approach. This is a kind of a, you know, it's interesting. Um, we see in faith-based investing, uh, pretty much across the board, a, a, an approach like this taken with, for instance, stem cell uh, research. Some faiths exclude any company that is involved in stem cells regardless of what percentage involvement they have or what percentage of their revenues it is. It's just an absolute exclusion. Similarly with cluster munitions or chemical and biological weapons. We don't care what percentage of your revenue stream this, this is, we're not gonna invest with you if this is part of your uh, uh, product offering. So it's just a different way of thinking through these issues. That's interesting. So. What other types of data would you find it helpful to have access to in evaluating companies across these ESG standards? I mean, is, I know there's a bunch of data out there, a bunch of different ratings. What else would be helpful for you to make that determination and for your clients to make that determination? Great question, Rich. One of the things that we find particularly important is the tracking error at the end of the exercise. Remember that we're trying to enable clients to express their uh, objectives and their mission without giving up performance. So for us, we need to be able to uh, ensure that the tracking error of the portfolio after the exclusions or inclusions of um, negative and positive screens is acceptable to the client. So if you're looking for a tracking error of uh, 50 basis points to the S&P or 20 basis points to the S&P or whatever it is, then we wanna make sure that the way we are um, providing the screening enables you to still achieve that objective. So but, you don't, so, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can do good and still do well. You've heard in the past uh, issues about performance, mm -hmm. um, there's some great it's two uh, two uh, items to talk about there. The first one is what I've just said, which is that you can always optimize back to the benchmark and therefore not give up performance. There's also a, a, a body of academic literature that um, that several uh, areas we're seeing from several areas, Harvard and some of the other areas that indicate that. Uh, ESG, even without optimization, is not uh, a negative uh, to performance. So that uh, in several of these studies, one of them, the largest study extant right now, uh, looked at over 2,200 studies and found that, in fact, um, having an ESG tilt in the portfolio, whether negative or positive, did not impact performance. And so that's that's comforting to know, but you can you can do this sort of work and still not uh, give up your objectives on the investment side. Yeah, we um we looked at it slightly different when we look at asset flows. Uh, one of the solutions we have um, kind of aggregates all the 
strategy level flows and gives us a macro view of where money's moving. And probably about five years ago when ESG started to become much more and more of a topic of conversation, we were getting questions of, well, is, are people looking at it and is money moving there? Uh, and so the answer was, yes, people are looking at it, but money wasn't moving there yet. So people weren't actually deciding to to allocate more to ESG strategies. And that's changed over the past probably two years. We've actually seen those flows. So when we look at the search activity of consultants and investors using investment to research managers uh, and found that that is indicative of future investment behavior. And now that started to pay off in terms of where the flows are going. So it took a little bit of time. Uh, and in that time, you know, all the conversation of, well, is this worth it? Uh, is there performance there was happening as well? I think, I think you're right. Um, one of the areas that I think is rife for this kind of investing is endowment and foundations. The most recent Nakubo study indicated that only 19% of endowments even had an ESG policy. Uh, so, Hello, guys. Let's catch up and, and get going. You know, uh, you see University of California, they they have uh, they've adopted a fossil fuel free approach. They moved they they moved a billion dollars out of their pension endowment and working capital pools uh, because they were connected with fossil fuel assets and reinvested that billion dollars in clean energy products uh, projects back in May of this year. So uh, uh, it's, a, it's my understanding, according to MSCI, that um, assets under management subject to fossil fuel divestment have tripled from three trillion in 2015 to six trillion at the end of 2018. That's the demographic. I, I remember, uh, was it the Harvard students protesting at a football game? And they sat in on the uh, the football field and stopped the game um, to bring attention to the fossil fuel investments of the Harvard Endowment. I think it was Harvard. might have been Yale. Yeah, it was one of the Ivy League schools. Um, I mean, that's something that made Sports Center <laughs> beyond uh, investing. By the way, the decision to go fossil fuel is, are, are, are different uh, for different folks. Um, for the scientists, environmentalists, and probably those students, uh, the central motivation to reduce our carbon footprint is to stop global warming, warming caused by you know, greenhouse gases and that sort of thing, which uh, allows us to reduce air pollution to for cleaner air from breathing. For the endowment trustees, however, they're more focused on how ESGs help predict future corporate financial performance. So. For many of these guys, the dominant motivation for fossil fuel divestment is to reduce systemic financial risk to climate change. So at the end of the day, their concern is that assets that they may own in companies in their portfolio uh, involved across the fossil fuel global value chain, whether they're upstream activities such as extraction to midstream activities like wholesaling and storage and that kind of thing, to downstream activities, including refining, marketing. The concern is that these assets could become stranded or lose their value in a future low carbon or zero carbon environment. Mm -hmm. So the institutions and fiduciaries are motivated by um, their responsibility to, see, to safeguard the portfolios against significant financial risk 
occasioned by these kinds of stranded assets. So it's interesting to see those two notions coming together with a single outcome. Yep. Trying to, uh, uh, to to make a better portfolio, and that that is why you would it would make sense logically with some of these um, ESG areas to see better future uh, financial performance uh, if in fact they you know, we do go to a carbon free or low carbon environment and some of these assets become stranded. Nobody wants them. Again, we're going to cover much more with Dennis in part two of this episode, but please feel free to reach out to us at solutions at investment.com with any questions you have about today's episode, or if you're interested in joining us uh, for an episode to talk about trends in the industry, we would love to have you. I want to thank you for listening and we look forward to hearing from you soon.